You're listening to the Mentors for Military podcast with your hosts, Robert Gowan, Rudy Lindsay, Mike Pritz, and Kat Kalin. Are you actually taking a vacation yet, or are you still... Tomorrow. We, oh. I uh, hop on the plane tomorrow. Yay. Congratulations. Thank <laughs> you. You deserve a break. Well, you know, we, my wife and I have been married for 10 years, September, and we never took a honeymoon. Oh, my so, gosh. So we, we did like a four-day weekend in Arkansas, which does not count. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and every other vacation that we've ever done has been to my parents, her parents, my daughters, you know, so there's always, we're staying so you at gotta, houses and yeah. You got to so, check the list with family. That's one thing right. I've learned. Yeah. Kids. So, yeah. so where her job has her, I don't know if I told you this the other day, she travels to Germany four or five months out of the year. And, uh, so she's, uh, she's been over there for a week. So I'm flying there tomorrow. We're going to spend a couple of days in Germany. Then we're going to Scotland for, three or four days then we're going to france paris we're gonna hit normandy oh my gosh and uh we've got a we have an airbnb that is on omaha beach that was 90 bucks a night oh wow that's crazy so, wow that's gonna be incredible yeah. i just got goosebumps thinking about that well that, enjoy yourself and be safe absolutely my wife's maiden name is calendar her family's scottish so we're gonna actually go to calendar scotland okay and, and kind of see where the family came from. And then she has, ever since she was a little girl, she's wanted to go visit Loch Ness. So we're going to go see if we can find the Loch Ness monster. The whole location up there is absolutely gorgeous. We went three years ago now. We actually stayed at a bed and breakfast there in Fort William called Gowan Bray. I got connected with somebody that lives just a couple of miles from here that they own a business that does reenactment of static line parachute jumps. So like for Normandy and other things. Her husband is a veteran of a French commando unit, and he is in St. Maryglise now. They have a, a house in St. Maryglise. So I've already gotten in touch with him. We're going to see if he can give us the behind-the-scenes tour while we're there, which ought to be pretty cool. That will be really fascinating. I mean, that's the, the best thing about traveling is if you can get with the locals, like you're talking about Airbnb or bread and, mm -hmm. bed and breakfast and stuff like that, where you can get them to communicate about what's going on, where it's the best place to stay and eat and look at. And that's and to get the history like that, that's amazing. It's it's interesting. I, I'm uh, Once I get back from the trip, I'm going to connect with, with them here and find out what's their operation, how do they do it, and then... Yeah, it might be something I get involved in. Sure. My wife would have a probably have a cow if she knew I was thinking about trying to jump. But it's been 20 years since I jump mastered a drop, but you know, maybe I can go through a refresher or something. We had a, an amazing experience while we were down there in Fort Benning. And thanks so much for the hospitality and introducing us to all the folks and everything. But it was really cool getting a chance to meet a lot of the heroes and warriors that were in that room. And Kat and I did a podcast afterwards. We came back and Friday morning we kind of talked about it. But what was so cool about the whole experience is that had you not been there and we'd have sat down and ate a cheeseburger from Burger King in the cafeteria or got that smoothie and just were looking around, we would have never had a clue who was walking in the room, nor would we had any idea if these folks worked in the building or were there for the event. The fact that you were there, you were able to introduce us to all these these great folks. That was that was amazing. Appreciate that very much. That's what sparked my my passion for connecting veterans because, and I, I want to say it was in the 2003 time frame. I went to a Ranger rendezvous and I got to meet 
a handful of the World War II Rangers that had actually landed at Omaha Beach and to hear their stories and to sit with them at the table. And, you know, this guy's 80, 85 years old. But when he starts talking about his wartime experience, it's like he becomes 20 years old again. Oh, wow. And, and to, to see the awe in their eyes when they saw the young Rangers and, the, and vice versa, I mean, it's like, I guess it's like a drug to me. It just, it's, it's an incredibly amazing experience. And to think about rubbing elbows with those guys, most of whom have already passed away now, uh, that's an experience that a lot of people... They'll never have, but think of how many people they shopped next to or they sat next to in church that had absolutely no idea who they were. Yeah, n- no clue. And, and it's just like when they started doing the very beginning of the show, we were totally unprepared, having never been. So sitting there in the audience and they start running through the history of the Rangers and all of a sudden they start announcing, are there any World War II vets? And then, and then they go to the next phase and they do some more talking. Are there any Darby Rangers? The fact that two guys stood up, and there may have been even more in the room, but directly in front of us, about four rows, were two older gentlemen that stood up Cat and I about fell over. We had no clue that these guys, you know, there were even guys living, let alone in that room at that time frame. Amazing. Right. I mean, the history yeah, there was there. There aren't there aren't very many left. Last um, trying to remember if it's September or November now, the Merrill's Marauders Association held a reunion here in the Dallas area, and they asked me to come speak at their banquet. And so I got my picture taken with 20 surviving Merrill's Marauders. Now about five of them have, have passed away since then. But just to be in that room and to hear those stories and to hear them talk to each other, it's uh, it's absolutely amazing. The bond between veterans that deployed together is unbreakable. And what's really even more interesting is the bond between veterans that did the same thing but generations apart. That is extremely strong, too. And the first time that I found out about it, I, I have to do a little show and tell here. My uh, my great uncle, my grandmother's brother, was a World War One infantryman and en- enlisted you know, as a private. And at the end of the war, he was a corporal and was a squad leader at that time. And he uh, had never told anybody in the family about his ex- his wartime experiences at all. And when I came back from leave, I think I'd been in the Army maybe five or six years, and we had some family event, whether it's Fourth of July or somebody's birthday. I don't remember now, but I found myself and Uncle Roy sitting uh, on a couch. Everybody else pretty much left, and we're just kicking back, and he just started telling me stories about World War One and being in France and being in the trenches and going over the top, and he talked about leading a patrol that one of the guys was killed on, and he talked about being in a shell hole and hearing one of his buddies scream out because he had been hit and he was able to kind of gauge the distance between the shells and he ran out, grabbed the guy and drug him back in the shell oh in the gosh. hole. Yeah. And, and I said, were you decorated for valor? And he, he almost recoiled like I slapped him. He said, Oh no, I didn't do anything brave. He said, I, <laughs> I just, you know, I just try to take care of my guys. And so later on after he left, I'm helping my grandmother clean up some things and I said, well, the story Uncle Roy told me about when he went out and saved his buddy, that, that was pretty amazing. And she said, what story is that now? And so he had never told his sister oh. or anybody else about this. But now that I'm an infantryman, we shared the same birthday, by the way. He was born in 1891. I was born in 1961, but on June 1st. And so this connection across 
multi-generations of infantrymen is absolutely astounding. And so my show-and-tell piece here is I have the compass that he carried. In Get out. Oh, that looks like that a pocket is- watch. That is yeah. crazy. Yeah, That is so cool. I also have, it's back on my bookshelf, I have his canteen cup. And the canteen cup from World War One is exactly the same size and shape as the canteen cup during Desert Storm. Uh, the Just the one-quart canteen right. slid into it. And so when I jumped into Kuwait, at the end of Desert Storm with 1st Ranger Battalion, I had his canteen cup in my canteen pouch. So it it went to France and it went to Kuwait. (laughs) That is awesome. What a great story. Could you imagine like people that come into your house, they look at, they're like, why is that on your wall? Like, what is that? It's like, that (laughs) is awesome. Don't dare talk about my cup that way. You know, hearing you tell stories about that and then stories about how you're just connected and you're sitting there with these World War II vets it's, it was the same for me, like walking in there, like I'm just, you know, I was just in during the GWAT time, but it's like when we came in at the Ranger Hall of Fame and we walked in there and, you know, Sergeant Major Millinger was like, you know, that's like Sergeant Major of the Army, retired Bill Gates. I told him, I'm like, are you, are you pulling my chain right now? And, you know, it just, I could not, and he like looked at me. I mean, this is the first time I ever met Sergeant Major Millinger. He's, like, that's the same thing. Like, I was so in awe of these legends who were so, they were just so amazing. And I look at them like their stories. Yeah, their stories need to be told. I mean, these are the guys that I needed to know about when I joined the military. And it was just like, like how you're talking about the World War II vets. I mean, you did incredible things and you talk about them the same way. And like, I'm talking about that generation. And it's like, it's going to continue to go on. Like that is the inspiration that, I mean, I still like my husband, you know, he's a ranger. He's very reserved and doesn't like to talk about that whole, you know, especially since he's in. But I came home and he's just like, it's like you just went and saw Britney Spears and you're 14. You know what I mean? Like, I'm like, I'm like, Kyle, he was going through my pictures and he's like, I know that guy. I know who that is. I met him. You need to fill me in on this. This is incredible. He's like, we're all just rangers, you know, like that's how we are. I'm always very open about how humbled I was to work with all three battalions. Just being in there was just, yeah, it was such a great experience. And I'm hoping to go next year. I was at a, I was at a lunch. Gosh, I'm, again, I'm trying to remember this is, I think, last October, a lunch here in the Dallas area that I got invited to. And oh, it was, it was when the, the Benghazi movie was uh, coming out. They did the world premiere here. And I sat at lunch with one other ranger, Marty Scovland, and four Medal of Honor recipients from GWAT. And, oh and we're in a downtown restaurant in Dallas, and nobody has any idea who these guys are. Yeah. And they're just, you know, they're wearing jeans and t-shirts and we're just joking and talking and having a great time. And it's one of those things where I'm, I'm trying to remember the, uh, the movie about the, the guy that became the lead singer for his favorite rock band. And uh, he's being interviewed by the media at when, when he starts his job as this lead singer. He's got this ear to ear grin. They want him to look all badass for the pictures. But he's got this grin that's just like, you know, he's three years old and just saw Santa Claus. Right. That's what it's like sitting with these guys. You just every once in a while, you have to just like hit yourself in the back of the head because it's, you know, just the fact that you're sitting there with this group of men is absolutely amazing. And I got to have to make sure and be upfront about everything. I was always a tweener when I was in the military because I was in ranger school when, when the rangers jumped into Grenada. So I missed that one. I was commanding a company in Hawaii when they jumped into Panama. 
So I missed that one. I was the first officer, first infantry officer to arrive at the first ranger battalion that didn't have a combat patch and a CIB. So, you know, trying to fight your way into that environment when everybody else has been to war sure. is a, a really interesting experience. And then while I was there, the entire rest of the army went to the war and the ranger regiment sat in the United States and watched CNN. And uh, we, we sent one company over towards the very end of it. I didn't get to go with them, but Lieutenant General Keene, who was one of the recipients of the Ranger Hall of Fame, was the officer that commanded that led, when he was a major, he led that task force over there. But then a year later, it was December of 91, when Iraq was moving troops and stuff back down to the border, trying to act like a bully again, we got alerted and we deployed, we did a jump in and a show of force. So it was considered a combat zone. And we walked through some areas where there were there was some debris and some mines and that kind of thing. But I've never been shot at, never shot anybody else, never shot at anybody else. So I got to be clear about my service. I I was I was always trying to get there, and uh, never quite never quite actually made it. And maybe that's one of the reasons why I'm so motivated to now to help the ones that have been there. I love that the whole concept behind Gallant View. So tell Thank us a little you. bit about how you kind of started that. How did that kind of happen? The Gallant Few story is kind of the Carl Monger story. So it, bear with me. It, if I get a little long-winded, you know, give me a cutoff sign or, <laughs> or something or interrupt me. But I have seen firsthand the multi-generational effects of post-traumatic stress and, and probably traumatic brain injury because my grandfather, my father's father, was a three-war uh, infantryman, got his CIB in World War II, and also was in Korea during the invasion and then also fought in Vietnam. And in 1977, he was a retired Sergeant First Class, and uh, he died alone in a men's shelter in Denver and was an alcoholic. All his possessions, my father told me later on, fit in a shoebox. And he had, in Everything that I have learned since, and when I think back to some of the stories that I heard about my grandfather, there's no doubt in my mind that he had post-traumatic stress and that he self-medicated and probably fought with the VA over benefits. His relationship with my father was virtually non-existent. They were, it was very adversarial, and he threw my father out of the house when he was under 18. And my father ended up joining the military as well. Can't remember if it's next week or the week after, but we're going to go to Heidelberg, which is where I was born. I've, I've never been back there, so that's going to be a lot of fun to go see that. But when they came back to the States, we were assigned at Fort Riley. And when I was four, I had a two-year-old sister. My mom was pregnant, and my dad decided he didn't want to be with the family anymore, so he left. And I think there's a lot of – I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist, but I think there's a lot of stuff from – the relationship with his dad that he was probably dealing with and some of that affected his behavior and he, he himself struggled with alcohol. So I ended up being man of the family at a pretty young age. And until my mom remarried, I think when I was 12, uh, I was responsible for my two young sisters. And when I was nine or 10 years old, I was one of the first kids that was enrolled in Big Brothers at that time. There was no Big Sisters, it was just Big Brothers. And the impact of that mentor on my life was I, I don't think you can understate or overstate what it was because here's this guy that had no he had no obligation whatsoever. But I've got an attorney, drives a white convertible Stingray Corvette, 1969 model that comes, picks me up, and we go to a movie or we go fly airplanes or whatever it was that we did. 
And just that little extra attention made me want to be more like him instead of being more like potentially like my dad was. I've seen the impact. My my other two sisters that uh, they didn't have, my sister that was two when dad left, she has no recollection of him at all. And, and I know that's really affected her. It's affected her personal life. I've gone through a divorce. And I there are things, I don't want to unpack too much of that, but I think the multi-generational effects of post-traumatic stress become like a funnel that goes out into the future. It starts with one person, but it widens as it goes out. And you know, you could have 20 or 50 or 100 people downstream that are affected by that. So that process has to be interrupted at some point and changed. Right. Had no plans to go into the military. My mom steered me away from that as far as possible. When I was at Wichita State University, I took uh, engineering and I was pursuing a mechanical engineering degree. And it was tough. And I was enjoying chasing women and drinking beer a little too much for my <laughs> studies. And I come around the corner at, enroll, at enlistment or enrollment time, excuse me. And there's a sign on the wall that says marksmanship class. And I'm thinking, I need an A. I, I think I could probably get an A in marksmanship class. Well, it was a ROTC class in disguise. And the nice. professor of military science was a lieutenant colonel, Green Beret, Ranger Tab, Special Forces. Uh, he looked like John Wayne and just big, solid guy that was very personable and and had done a lot of things in, in his military career. And he kind of took me under his wing and he pulled me aside after I'd been in the program for a couple of months and said, you know, you ought to apply for an ROTC scholarship. So I did. And the Army paid for the last three years of my school. So it was totally by accident that I fell into it, and which, which is totally opposite of what I counsel everybody about now when I help them with their transition. You don't want to become who you are by accident. You, you want it to be intentional. But as I am going through the process of ROTC, I am getting acquainted with what Rangers are. And I'm thinking, well, if I'm going to go into the Army, I should be an infantryman. Why would you want to go in the Army and be a finance guy? Might have been a smarter thing to be a finance guy than an infantry guy. <laughs> but so became an infantry officer, went to Ranger school. I, I think the scariest thing in my entire life that I have ever done was signed a piece of paper that said I volunteered to go to ranger school because at that point there's really no turning back. And it's interesting that only about half the entry officers in my class actually signed that form. The other ones didn't do it. But it's like the Forrest Gump movie, you know, all of a sudden you're a round peg in a round hole right. and it just, it fit. And and I love the environment. And my first assignment, the ninth ID, Barry McCaffrey was my brigade commander, Glenn Hale, who was one of the recipients of the Ranger Hall of Fame last week was my very first battalion commander. And as I became Lieutenant Ninth ID, second Ranger Battalion's right around the airfield and I'm seeing these soldiers, I'm seeing the professionalism of them and I'm thinking, man, that's a goal to aspire to, but I'm, I don't think I'm quite, I don't think I'm there physically, uh, soldier-wise. Come out of ROTC, I was just a college kid just a couple of years ago. So I just watched from afar. Then I go to Hawaii and I command a company of the 25th Infantry Division for Jim Dubick, who is another Ranger Hall of Fame member. And about halfway through my company command time, he pulled me in and he said, you need to put in a packet for the regiment. I, I want you to try and go there. So I put in a packet, got accepted, went and, uh, and served the three years at the 1st Ranger Battalion. So towards the end of my time there in uh, October of 92, we had a helicopter crash that killed 12 out of 13 on board. First Ranger Battalion Commander Ken Staus, who is on my wrist, very, very dear friend of mine, 
Uh, he was a mentor to me. I was his uh, S1 personnel officer for a year. And that the loss of him and the 11 others was absolutely devastating to me. And it made me relook at where I was. And I had two young daughters that were both under the age of 10. Did I, did I want them to be without their dad? And post-Desert Storm, I'm seeing a world that's changing. And uh, the Army's probably not going to go to war again for a while because it seems to be 20-year increments that, that the right. Army goes to war in. So uh, around that same time, I lost the opportunity to command a ranger company. It, it got given to somebody else. It had been promised to me by two ranger battalion commanders. And then the third, the guy that came in that was the permanent replacement decided to put somebody that he knew better than me into that job. I don't fault him for that at all. But at that point, it was like I've worked so hard here to command a ranger company, and now I've lost that opportunity. Screw this. So went home, talked to my wife about it, came back in thinking maybe I need to leave the Army. And there's a message that says that they've reopened the voluntary separation incentive for officers in my year group. For a two-week window, it was almost $200,000 spread out over 20 years to get out. So I'm like, oh, okay, God, I guess you're telling me what you want me to do next is get out. So I am... In a whirlwind, I'm back in Wichita, Kansas, still have a high and tight haircut, and I'm trying to figure out how do I go from being, I was now the assistant S3 of the 1st Ranger Battalion, to trying to find a job in the civilian economy. And I'm failing miserably. I'm, I'm flailing around. My very first job interview was with one of the largest privately held companies in the United States. It's based in Wichita. Their human resource manager looks at my resume, and she looks at me, and she says, hmm, Army officer, you know... <laughs> You guys are real good at following orders and doing what you're told. But here at this company, we need people that have initiative, think outside the box, and don't need constant supervision. Oh, my gosh. I, I, I've memorized it from the time oh that she God. said that. So I just fold up all my stuff and leave because I'm thinking there's no way I'm going to work for a company that's this stupid. And uh, they're still doing fine without me. So <laughs> they weren't that stupid. But now I'm trying to figure out. I've already had uh, a loss of self-confidence because I lost the dream job that I wanted to have in the Army. Now I've been rejected by a, a large company that I thought would fall all over themselves to hire me. And so I'm thinking, holy crap, I've got two daughters and you know, I didn't take the lump sum. So now i got to wait another year before I get a check for about $9,000 to help with my transition. So I ended up, and this was my the first lesson in transition. Uh, my brother-in-law, his father ran an insurance company, and one of his clients was a guy that was principal in a bottling company. So this network got me an interview with a guy that owns a bottling company. So number one, networks work. I sit down with this guy and find out he's a Korean War infantryman. And so we have a nice 10-minute discussion about the Army, and he says, well, I don't have a position available, but I think I'll create one for you. Second transition lesson, if, if the network works and they understand what you might be able to bring to the table, they're going to find a way for you. And he said, what would it take for me to hire you? Well, I had put pencil to paper very carefully, and I knew that $25,000 was my absolute, that, that's where I needed to be to cover all my bills. So I said, $30,000. And he said, done. And so now what am I in my fourth transition lesson, which is understand the value of what you bring to an organization. Yeah, right. Because I probably could have gotten 40 or 45. 60, I, 70, sure. I, I didn't know. Now, this is 1993. So it was a, a forty or $50,000 job back then was, was doing pretty good. So, right. so I, I was kind of happy that I got five more than I needed. 
but I immediately recognized that I could have had more. So anyway, they throw me into a job, which I don't understand the company. I don't understand the culture. I'm still total military. And they put me in a situation where I am training. I'm the training guy. I'm the safety and training director because they're insurance. They had some accidents and they needed to, to correct and clean up what they were doing. So now I'm going around and I am telling people, you have to put on your safety glasses when you're in the pressurization room and vice president operations, you can't smoke over an open bottle of seven up going down the line. And their response to me is who the hell are you? You can go after yourself. <laughs> and, and, and so now I've got this emotional problem going on. The self-esteem has already taken several, several hits. Now I've got responsibility but no authority so I'm getting very frustrated and why don't they understand I'm trying to help and it was just it was turning into a bad situation but left unchecked that kind of thing if I had quit or if I had been fired I wouldn't have known any better and I might have repeated the same mistake a sure. couple of times and if you do that three or four times now you're one of those guys that can't hold down a job and you know what what kind of job are you going to have going forward it's going to be an hourly low-paying blue-collar job that's not going to be very fulfilling not that those can't be fulfilling, but in my case, it would have been very fulfilling. So fortunately, and this was lesson number five in transition, one of my buddies that I had served with in the military, he had taken a job. He knew his transition plan. He got out before I did. He came back to Wichita, and he was he started off as service manager for a construction equipment company, and then they made him the sales guy. And he'd come pick me up to lunch, and he'd brag about how much money he was making. He'd show me his commission checks and... Uh, he was being promoted to be the branch manager, and he wanted me to come backfill as the sales guy. So the transition lesson here is when when I sat down with him, I said, you know, I'm, I'm flattered that you said that, but I don't know anything about sales. Matter of fact, I have a negative perception of salespeople, and I don't know anything about construction equipment. So it sounds like a losing proposition for everybody. And he said... I can teach the iron, I can teach the sales, but I can't teach the character and conviction and discipline and the ability to learn. And you've demonstrated that you have all of those things. So he took a chance and he brought me into the company. And uh, over the next two years, I made more money than I had ever made, was recognized having highest profit margin among the sales guys. And it was a lot of fun, but I'm becoming friends with my customers. And how do I make 40% profit margin on a machine when I know that if I make 20, I'm going to be very well rewarded from the company, but I have the ability to make 40. So I'm struggling with, am I in it for myself or am I in it to help them? Right. And, and so this guy is helping coach me through, he's mentoring me through this stuff. So I'm, I'm gradually, I'm moving from the military mindset more over to the civilian mindset. And I remember one time, uh, the service manager and I were having a disagreement about his priorities and fixing some of the equipment. And Bill is standing there and he's helping, he's trying to help coordinate this stuff. And I'm getting very impatient. And, and finally, Bill gets angry at me and he says, you go, go in the other room, I'll talk to you in a minute. So when he finishes up, he comes and he gets me and he says, look, you're not in the Army anymore. You can't talk to him like he's in the military. We, we have a different way of communication. And so he is training, he's coaching me through this process. And it's a long, it's a multi-year process to go through transition. It's not something that you just go, boom, right. unless... Unless you're contracting and you can do the exact same thing. So long story, but I was I was mentored, I was networked, I was coached through my transition process. Otherwise, God knows where it might have ended up. I'm in the construction world 
and and I'm loving it. And uh, I find out that the Big Brothers Big Sisters agency that I was a kid in a couple of decades before is looking to replace the executive director who was there when he started it. Right. So I threw my hat in the ring and they hired me. So I went over and for a couple of years, I ran that Big Brothers Big Sisters agency. Very, very fulfilling uh, really enjoyed the impact that, that I felt that I made there, learned an awful lot about the value of mentoring and how to measure that stuff. And then I got pulled back into the construction world. And uh, I spent my time doing construction equipment management. I ran a United Rentals branch and I worked for a large contractor. And then the bottom fell out of the construction market in Wichita, Kansas in 2009 when the evil auto yeah. executives flew their corporate aviation to D.C. to talk about how bad their business sucked. Um, Wichita's based is built on Cessna and Beechcraft and Learjet and the company that I worked for did most of their work for those companies so they had to downsize very rapidly and I got laid off and I had back in 2003 I'm going to jump back around through the story a little bit and this is all going somewhere I promise yeah it's fine back in 2003 I went through a divorce and I ended up with custody of my two teenage daughters and somebody told me about this thing called Facebook because if your kids are on it, you should be on it. So I got on Facebook and a couple of rangers popped up. And so now my my networking mind, my sales mind is kicking in and saying, hey, I, I can network with rangers in other parts of the country. So if I want to do business somewhere, I have an asset I can reach out to. So I'm intentionally building this network purely on a selfish level. Oh, started the first uh, ranger networking group on LinkedIn called U.S. Army Rangers. And uh, the same time frame, in 2003, my former boss from the 1st Ranger Battalion, Joe Votel, was changing out the Ranger Regiment Command. He, he was the regimental commander during 9-11. And I had reconnected with him after that because I shot him an email and said, I'm proud of you, Joe. You know, gosh, I, I, I wish that I'd have been there. And so he invited me to come to his change of command. And when I got there, I reconnected with all these Rangers that that I knew from before that now were in senior positions. And... I started seeing from stories that they were telling me, I started getting a sense of the fraying that was happening. Families were being frayed. To their, I mean, just the pace of, of deployments and the combat, the whole thing was having an effect, an emotional effect on Rangers that were still serving and on those that were getting out. Right. So but this networking group starts to become an informal way to help those guys as they transition out. I was the hub of the wheel, and every ranger that came into the group, I verified who they were, and then I connected them with somebody else. And I, I loved it so much. I'd go to work. I'd come home. I'd get on my laptop, and for two or three hours at night, I would connect rangers, and I would build this network. So by 2009, now there's a 1,000 rangers in this group. All Everything now is kind of it's coming to a focal point. And from all generations, no matter where you— Right. Okay. But then I hear then-Secretary of the VA Shinseki say— 18 veterans every day commit suicide. And I'm, I think back to my interactions at regiment. I'm looking at this group of rangers that we have, and I'm thinking, well, let's, we got a thousand rangers that says a ranger is not going to commit suicide. So let's figure out a way to put a supportive program in place so that happens. And uh, that's when the concept for what became Gallant Few was born. Became a 501c3 in 2010. The guy who had mentored me into the construction job. He and I are sitting, having a beer at a restaurant in Wichita, and I'm telling him about, I'm seeing these problems, and now I've seen this 18 veterans commit suicide, and 
and I've got this network of people. And he reaches into his pocket. He pulls out a $100 bill because he's one of those sales guys that always had a $100 bill in his wallet. <laughs> right. And he lays it on the table and he said, there's your first donation. Get started. Awesome. So now I had no excuse. He became one of the first board members. He's not a ranger. So as the organization be- developed, he said, you have to be able to take care of people that aren't rangers as well. Because the concept that you have, one-on-one mentoring, it works regardless of the branch of service, regardless of your MOS. You know, so I don't want you to just focus on rangers. So from that first year when we helped a couple of dozen veterans, half of them were rangers, half of them were not rangers, to last year when we provided just under a thousand different services to veterans. That doesn't mean a thousand veterans, because if one veteran needed help with a, an addiction issue and they also needed a job, that was two services to one veteran. So I, it's somewhere in the 650 to 600 to 650 veterans that we helped last year. The core of what we try to do, when and this is built on everything that I learned from a kid all the way up through in being in the business world, what we have to do, the biggest issue that I see with a veteran when they go, when they leave active duty and they go back to their community, is they begin this glide slope towards isolation. And left unchecked, the end of that potentially is a headstone like the one that my uh, grandfather has in Logan National Cemetery in Denver. Along that path, you start seeing things that will bump you off of the path. And those things could be the VA not provide the appropriate care. It could be self-medicating with alcohol. It could be fighting with the spouse. It could be employment problems, which lead to money problems, which all of these things are, are accelerants on this downhill slope. And we have the ability to head that off if we can connect that person with a, a veteran mentor in their same hometown that's just like them, but 10, 20, 30 years removed from active duty that can sit down and can say, where do you want to, what do you want to be now? What, when you're growing up, you know, talk to me about uh, the things that you do and talk to me about your activities. Talk to me about your dreams and, and where do you want to go to school or what kind of job do you want to have? I had a conversation with a, a veteran. This guy was not a ranger here a couple of weeks ago. And he had just come into the network, and every veteran that enters the network, whether they offer to be a mentor or they say they need some assistance, I'd get, I give them the opportunity for a 15-minute phone call with me. So I'm on the phone with this guy, and I describe what's going on. Well, I'm, you know, I'm having trouble getting a job. I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to do. And I said, how much are you drinking? And he said, oh, I have a couple of drinks a day. So I immediately double or triple that because, you know, it's, it's more. Whatever somebody tells you, it's more. How much sleep are you getting a night? I'm doing okay. I get about four hours of sleep a night. So I know from experience of talking with all these veterans and the, the research and the things that I have done that excessive alcohol and no sleep leads you to make bad decisions. And those bad decisions affect yourself financially, they affect you socially, it affects you spiritually. And and so I said, no, seriously, how much do you drink? And he said, uh, not that much. I think the last time that somebody had to drive me home was maybe last week. And I said, how old are you? And he said, uh, just turned 30. And I said, don't you think it's time to grow up? And then, and, and then I was just quiet for a minute and let him, you know, kind of, thumped him between the eyes there for a minute. And so and so I said, you know, there's a responsible way to use alcohol. I have a beer or a glass of wine just about every night when I have dinner. Maybe I'll have two, but that's it. There's a responsible way to use alcohol. 
and there's an irresponsible way to use alcohol, and you're irresponsibly using alcohol, let's talk about the ramifications of that downstream, because I know guys who have had failed kidneys. I know guys who have had failed relationships that you can trace back to alcohol. I know guys that hide bottles in their in their house because they're trying to deal with things that they're, they don't have the resources to deal with. Where, and where that is going to take you is a bad spot. Now, I can challenge a veteran, if it's an army guy or gal, I can challenge them in some unique ways because just about everybody in the army has a great deal of respect for rangers. If I'm working with a ranger, I can I can use some very specific language to tell them how far off the path I think they are and how to get back on it. It's unique because of the, the army to ranger relationship. And part of that goes back to 1974 and Crate and Abrams charter to help rebuild the army, starting with the formation of a ranger battalion. If I turn that around, and if I have somebody that's not a ranger that's trying to help somebody that is a ranger, that ranger is less likely to to believe what they say because how could you know what I'm going through? You're right. not a ranger. You haven't been through what I've been through. So, what the creating the relationships, we have to be careful. Hierarchy is not the right term, but there is a, an emotional kind of a hierarchy in terms of the ability that you can help. I am not very effective working with a Marine Corps veteran because I've never been through any Marine Corps training. You know, I, I have Marines that are friends. Uh, the Army says "hua." The Marines completely mispronounce it, and <laughs> it's it, it's it's one of those things that it makes it difficult for them to accept the guidance that I might want to offer or the help that I might want to offer them for a transition. Uh, if it's a Marine that's transitioned out 10, 20, 30 years ago that says, hey, Marine, let's talk about life. Now there's an immediate bond and an immediate respect and that communication flows and it works. My ultimate goal with everything that we do is any veteran, any branch of the service leaves anywhere in the world and when they go to wherever they choose to call home, they are connected immediately with a veteran that's just like him or her, previously transitioned, successful in whatever, whether they're a janitor or a CEO of a company, if they feel like they're successful and established in their in their space, they can help that veteran that's like them make a transition as well. First, you match somebody that's like Branch, but then you don't necessarily match somebody that is choosing a similar career path and a mentor that's from that career path or from if, that. If possible. If possible. Okay. If possible, we want to do that. And then um, within a certain geographical radius, what, what do you kind of try to get as a boundary? As close as possible. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> now, you know, we've, we have um, that thousand Rangers now is 5,000 in that networking group. And I'm able to use them as recon guys for transition. So I've had an army veteran, not a Ranger in a state far away from Texas that popped up and, and needed some assistance. And I couldn't gauge on the telephone how reliable was the information that he was giving me. So was he, did he not have any money, not able to get a job because he had a drug problem? Or was was there a, a, maybe a psychological issue? Or was it that he just never got a break and nobody ever guided him through? So right. I, I did a zip code search, found a ranger that was within the same zip code, called that ranger up and said, would you take this guy out, have a cup of coffee with him, and let me know what you perceive to be the reality? And the ranger did that. They sat down, they had a, a conversation, and now I've got a local ranger, and rangers tend to be problem solvers. So this ranger's like, oh, what can I do in our community? Where can I find some resources to maybe help this guy? And 
his report back to me was, yeah, he, he's a good guy. He's, he's taken on more than he can handle family responsibility-wise, and he needs a little bit of assistance. So there are some other things that we've done to provide some direct assistance to that veteran. That, that network is really effective, and it works really well. Uh, in an ideal world, this guy, let's say he was from the 9th Infantry Division, if I could get somebody that served in the 9th Infantry Division, maybe a Vietnam veteran that was a 9th Infantry Division person. Yeah, even better. Yeah, even better, because now you have somebody that just, hey, you were in my division, I want to help you. So that's... So your network of Rangers is 5,000, but how big is the total network? Because now you're starting to deal with Marines, MARSOC, Air Force, right. Navy. Yeah, I mean, you've expanded all across the board to all branches. Yeah, it's, it's, it's approaching 10,000. That's wonderful. And my network, I, I you know, I could say I have a million people in the network because I use LinkedIn uh, to find anybody. If I have a veteran that needs assistance in a particular community, I don't, well, I don't have anybody there. That's not the way I do it. I'll, I'll go to LinkedIn. I'll do a keyword and a zip code search and I'll find somebody. I might not be connected to the person, but I'll find somebody that's a veteran that's in that area. And I'll do some reverse searches and some other things. So I'll find them on Facebook, whatever I need to do. And I'll reach out to them. I'll send them an email or a phone call and I'll say, hey, I've got a veteran that's in your area, background similar to yours. You don't know me. This is what I do. Would you be willing to have a cup of coffee with this veteran and kind of assess the situation and see what the community might be able to do? And in every instance, uh, I've had that veteran has said, absolutely, let me let me jump on board and let me help out. I was just getting ready to say, I can't imagine a veteran probably saying to you, no, Carl, I'm not interested in doing anything of the sort. I mean, right. most veterans are willing to extend that offer and, and certainly want to mentor and give back to those guys that are coming out now. I really applaud you for what you guys have been able to do. We have, I, I want to tell you about one example, and I think it's an important one because it's one that is common. I've seen it in the Army and the Marine Corps veterans, and there are some Air Force veterans that are dealing this, with this as well. Like when I left active duty, I, I had an event that caused me to say, I can't be part of this anymore, so I'm going to leave. It was, a, it was a personal failure on my part. It was, I quit. I'm out. I'm done. I'm leaving. And a few months after that was when Somalia and Black Hawk Down happened, and I know Rangers that were deployed that were there. And and so now I'm going through sleepless nights, second guessing, should I have been there? What? And and on top of that, my the helicopter crash that killed those 12, um, it was just total luck of the draw that I wasn't sitting on that helicopter because half the time I'd go with the battalion commander because I was the assistant S3. So there's survivor's guilt. There's all these things that are jumbled in there and when your self-confidence takes a hit and you leave the community and you think the community doesn't want to have anything to do with you because you left the community. Right. And so you're hesitant. It was 10 years before I went back. You're hesitant to go tell somebody that you're a ranger because they might go, oh, oh yeah, you're the guy that that happened to, or you're the guy that got a DUI, or you're the guy that whatever. You're the guy that walked out on our team when we went back to war. I, I hear that a lot. One that uh, this is from a conflict, several conflicts back, a ranger that was that broke his leg on a parachute assault in a, into a combat zone. And as he went through the medical evac process, he saw he was next to a ranger that died from gunshot wounds. He was he went through Walter Reed with other special operations veterans that had gunshot and blast wounds. And he's being 
uh, lauded as a hero with this group, and he broke his leg on a jump, and he's thinking that his injury doesn't compare to their wounds, and he was he was somehow less of a ranger or, or dishonorable because he broke his leg and he wasn't shot, and and that whole thing over decades has messed with him, and he has never gotten the kind of help that he needs, and and his post-military life has been a shadow of what it should have been had somebody pulled him to the side and said, knock that crap off, get that out of your head. What you did was ever been as much of a sacrifice as the other person and and your contribution was valuable and you still can contribute. But nobody had ever had that conversation with him. One of the programs that we have encouraged and helped grow is First Saturday Veteran Breakfasts. So in communities all across the country, rangers, <coughs> excuse me, rangers get together at nine o'clock on a Saturday morning, or if the community wants to do it the second Saturday at 10, whatever locally works, they get together and they just have a breakfast and they have a fellowship time with other Ranger veterans. The one the Pacific Northwest has got like 50 Rangers that go to it now. Um, there was one of these events that was a mile from his house. And he tells me on the phone, yeah, I heard about that, you know, but uh, I didn't go. I'm like, dude, why didn't you go? And he said, well, I didn't think I'd be welcome. Mm. All right, come on. Yeah. That's, but it just, it breaks your heart. And, yeah. and it's not just Rangers that that happens to, because I've talked to Marine Corps infantrymen who had an injury or something happened and they, they said, I'm out, I'm, I'm done with the Marine Corps, I'm, I'm out. And then their platoon goes, gets deployed and goes back into combat. Now they're the one that abandoned the team. They're, they're the one that turned their back on them. When they were going back to war, you decided to stay home, get fat, you know, and go get wow. a nice cushy job. And, and so they think mentally, they think that that's what their platoon feels about them. And so they will not have contact with that unit or with their buddies because they're, they're terrified of what that, they don't want to go through that conversation, but that doesn't happen. Right. They, when, when they get reconnected, I mean, there's no greater love than those that have served together. And that's part of the Spartan Pledge that we do. And Boone Cutler authored this uh, a few years back, and, and we've helped him spread the word on it. And we have we actually have a few of these left over. I'm going to have to get some more made up. But we have these Spartan Pledge coins. And on the, they come in numbered pairs. The back of it's got the Spartan Pledge, which it doesn't say, I'm not going to kill myself. It says, I'm not going to take my life by my own hand until I call you first, your battle buddy, who you promised to. And I'm going to make it my mission to find a mission to help my warfighter family. Somebody committing suicide, that's probably the ultimate decision. You can't ever tell somebody, I'm not going to do it because I don't know what my life circumstances might be someday. Maybe uh, it's, it's to the point where I feel that's the only acceptable option. I hope that never comes. But if I've taken the Spartan Pledge, and I have... With uh, and I'll tell you this story here in just a second. But when you take that pledge, you'll reach out and you'll call, even if it's only to say I'm done, goodbye, love you later. What happens when you open that line of communication is the other person says, "Whoa, whoa, 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 wait a minute. I want you to understand how important you are to me. I want you to understand how much I respect and value and love you. And damn it, I need you here. That conversation saves lives." The guy that mentored me when I left active duty, he, he went through a divorce that was emotionally toiling. It was very, very rough on him. And uh, somebody, I hadn't talked to him in a while, and somebody said, hey, 
reach out and call that guy because uh, I'm, I'm kind of worried about him. So I called him up and I said, hey, how's it going? And he said, not good. And so we talked for a minute more, but I could, I could hear the despair in his voice. And I said, I have a question for you. It's a hard question. Have you thought about hurting yourself? And for a good 10 or 15 seconds, he didn't say anything. And that scared the crap out of me. So I, I told him about Spartan Pledge. And then I drove up to see him, and I took a set of coins. Matter of fact, mine is over here. Um, and, and so we took the pledge together. And I talked to him probably, I don't know, maybe six months, a year later. And we had maintained constant communication ever since then. But, but I, I said, hey, I, I just wanted you to know I got my coin. It's right here in front of me on my desk. And he goes, oh, yeah, mine's on a chain around my neck. Now, look at this thing here. It's it is, pretty thick. Yeah, it, it's a heavy deal. It is amazingly, amazingly powerful. And I hate the focus on 22, 18, 20, whatever the number of the day is for veteran suicides. I don't like that focus because I think when you make a problem so insurmountable, then people, number one, will turn their minds off and they'll say, well, I can't do anything about 20 veteran suicides a day. Or a veteran says, it's okay, there's 19 others, I'm gonna be part of that team. So I don't like to focus on that. What I prefer to say is, we have to prevent the next veteran suicide. So how do we prevent the next veteran suicide? And if you're a veteran, think about that buddy that you have not spoken with for six months or a year or two years. Uh, think about if you were to get a phone call tomorrow or if you were to see a Facebook post tomorrow that somebody had had left, had, had checked out, and it would make you feel bad, who is that person? Pick up the phone, send them a text, call them, just say, hey, hey, buddy, I was just thinking about you, and I, I want you to remember that I love you and I respect you, and you're part of my life. Because you don't know what's going on with that person or where they might be later today or tomorrow. By doing that, if every one of us does that, we're going to chop that veteran suicide rate down significantly. I, I think there's always going to be some that, due to mental illness or something else, you're never going to be able to stop. But the, the ones out of despair, because they've isolated, we can totally prevent those from happening. I lost you there just for a second when you were talking about the weight of the coin, mm -hmm. and it faded out for about a 30-second block. I don't know if you could tell me what you said right after that. Yeah, yeah. So, so uh when I told him, I, he told me that, that he wore it on a chain around his neck. And I said, that, that, that's a heavy coin. Does it bother you? And he said, every time I move, it thumps me in the breastbone and it reminds me. So for him, it was that constant reminder that he's loved, he's respected, and that the other problems, that's external stuff that's going to go away. I, kinda, and, that, I love that. that. That's beautiful. And, and his life is so much better now than it was then. Um, wow. You know, it's listening to your story and just one of the guests that we had on the show and he's like, you, you want to know what the most important thing a vet can do for a vet. And, you know, I'm thinking like, you know, like you said, call or just be there and it just love one another. And that's, you know, that's what we need to do for each other. And that's what we should do for each other is just love one another and and actually show that we love each other. Yeah, un unconditional. But that doesn't mean that they should do whatever they want. You know, oh, it's unconditional love is that's it's challenging and it goes 
it goes both ways. And how do you make each other better? I speak from my experience because I was in the Army and all the units that I served in were all men, but you always had your Ranger buddy that was watching your back. And that guy, if you had a task to do, he was going to help you do it. And you were going to help him do it. And if he saw that you were doing something that was going to harm the buddy team, he would let you know that. And you would let him know that. But then when you leave active duty and you go your different ways, you're you're like, well, I guess now I'm on my own and I can't I I can't reach out and call him to say I'm having a problem because that's admitted weakness. Yeah, I should be able to solve my problems by myself, totally forgetting that this was the person that helped you solve those problems. Now you won't reach out to him because you're embarrassed to admit that you might have a problem or an issue. We gotta get over that. We gotta get past that. And part of it is forced. Uh, we have to force it. And the way that you force it is by having an old guy like me talk to a younger veteran that's leaving active duty to say, hey, you know what? You're going to feel this way. You probably already feel this way. I know it because I did. It's time to get over that. And if you need help, you better reach out and ask for it. That real talk is what's needed. How do individuals get better in the military? Every time you do an exercise or a combat operation, you always have a hot wash or you always have an AAR and you go over. I don't know if they still do it, but back then you had the eight battlefield operating systems and you went to maneuver and give me three pluses and three minuses for your squad in the area maneuver or communications or whatever it was. Each one of us has a transition AAR that we've accumulated over the last, whether it's one to 30 years of service but there's been no mechanism to share the AAR lessons learned to somebody that's getting ready to walk the same path that you walked. And uh, if only we start sharing those AARs, if we share those transition lessons learned specifically to those veterans that are coming behind you, then they're going to have a much easier time. They're going to get connected much more quickly. Uh, They're going to be able to avoid things. And I had, had a ranger... Uh, former staff sergeant with eight combat deployments. And as I'm talking to him on the phone, trying to unpack what's going on and what we can do to help, the biggest message that I had for him was, you know, that stuff that you're going through with the drinking and the VA and and, uh, your kids, and I hear that from more than half of the Rangers that I talk to. They're going through the exact same thing that you're going through. And he started crying on a telephone. I'm like, oh my God, I got a, I got a staff sergeant on the phone here that's crying and I don't know what I did. And, and so he composes himself and he says, so it's not just me. No, it's not just you. It, there's, there, it is commonplace to experience that. And it's commonplace to not want to share your, what you perceive to be weaknesses with somebody else. But you know, when you're in a firefight, if you're out of ammo, you say, hey, I need some help. I need some ammo. You don't say, oh, man, I, I'm weak. I ran out of ammo. I, I can't tell anybody. Right. No, that's ridiculous, <laughs> right? Right. You're going you're gonna to reach out and ask for assistance. And, uh, and that's, what, that's what we have to help them do that because it's not part of the culture. I um, can feel the passion from you in what you're doing. I mean, it's, it's so evident. What if somebody is listening to this and they want to be a part of Gallant View in terms of being a mentor or they want to get in contact and be a participant in this because they're going to either be transitioning very soon or they just recently transitioned? What's what's the process that they go through? Sure. Thank you. Gallantview.org is the webpage. 
there is a place on there for veteran sign up. You can you can read through a bunch of the things that we do. We have a thing going on right now where we're asking people that have participated with Gallup to tell us their story. So if you're brand new to the website, you'll get a box that pops up that says, tell us your story. Click the X, it'll go away, you're into the rest of the, the website. The best way to do it is hit gallantview.org because we confirm everybody's service. You're going to go, you're going to read a little legal disclaimer that says we're going to bust our butt to help you, but, you know, we're not savior of mankind. So you're really responsible for your problems. We're going to, we're going to offer resources to help, but we can't guarantee that, that just by joining Gallifu, life is going to change. You got to play a role in that, active role in that yourself. So get through that. And then there's a way that they can send us a copy of their 214 or, or a shot of their ID card, their VA card. I just want to make sure that we have a legitimate veteran that we're talking to. Sure. Uh, it does not matter the type discharge the veteran received when they left active duty. If they got another than honorable or a dishonorable discharge, I will still talk to them. And we'll figure out. This goes back to things that I see a lot that are, that are coming out of the active duty. You have somebody that might have been soldier of the quarter last quarter and then they do a combat deployment and they come back and now they're Joe Dirtbag and they may go AWOL or they may get a DUI or they, there's something that happens and the chain of command doesn't sit down with them and being a former company commander I totally understand the mindset uh, they don't sit down with them and say what's going on right what, why did this happen you know was there did you did, did something happen on the deployment or whatever uh, they don't have those kind of conversations. Instead, they're like, I don't have time for a dirt bag. You know, I don't know why you went stupid, but now you're stupid and I don't want anything to do with you. And they crush them and they they give them another than honorable discharge or they yeah. they force them out without getting a full evaluation. And that goes right back to my grandfather in World War II. Undiagnosed post-traumatic stress, TBI, the behaviors that come from that a lot of that stuff starts as they go through the discharge process from the military. And and when they're crushed as they leave, then they're into that, I'm a failure, I've got no self-confidence, I can't solve my own problems, but I can't ask for help because now not only is it not manly to reach out for help, but now they've taken the resources away from me. Sure. So, I mean, it, it's a wonder that the number is not more than 20 or 22 veteran suicides a day. We will work with anybody regardless of their discharge. Now, if somebody refuses to take responsibility for themselves and uh, I take responsibility and I break it into two words and you have the ability to choose your response to anything that happens to you, if you don't choose to make that decision to take responsibility and be accountable for yourself, then we'll cut you loose and we're not going to help you. If you keep doing drugs or if you keep doing whatever. But if you come, I, I've got a great example of a ranger that uh, was addicted to street drugs some heavy-duty street drugs. And he popped up and he asked for some help from some ranger buddies, and we put some resources behind this. And uh, one of our volunteers took the guy to the VA, sat down, said, this ranger, combat veteran, is addicted to street drugs. We need to get him help now. He, he wants to get help now. And their answer was, well, um, we don't have an available appointment for another two weeks, so we'll, we'll call you. And to make sure, well, the guy doesn't have a phone, but he's here. He needs help now. And their answer was, well, don't stop using the drugs because you might go into bad withdrawals and die. So continue to use the drugs until we can get you in. And it's like, 
I mean, you've got to be kidding me, right? And and as they're calling me and they're telling wow. me that that was the answer from the VA, did you ask the VA to refer him to a civilian institution locally? Yeah, they won't do that. So <laughs> this ranger ended up moving in with the ranger that's helping him, took him in under his wing, helped him through all of that process. Now he this ranger has an apartment. He's clean. He's going through vocational rehab, so he's going to have skills. He's getting education. I mean, it's a total change that we were able to bring about because of the supportive relationship of, of that network. And one of the things that we, the, the volunteer that helped out, we have helped. You need some money for the extra food the guy's eating. You need some money for gas or whatever because you're driving him 100 miles each way to go to appointments. But the guy's alive and he's got some hope and he's, he's going to go forward. Well, the awareness, wow. too. I mean, you couldn't have done anything unless you were made aware. So right. the connection, the network, and the ability to know now that somebody, a brother, is in need. Okay, let's let's now step right. in. So it's a matter, too, of trying to bring that attention and awareness to you guys to offer that type of assistance. And like you said, it starts with you. Or if you know somebody who's recently separated a ranger, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, then get them in contact with Gallant Few as well so that they can get, become part of the system and right. take advantage of some of the resources that you guys have. Absolutely. Yeah. And I want to highlight, too, you've got a couple other programs that I thought you might want to highlight real quick, which is the Darby Project mm-hmm. and Run Ranger Run. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Gallant Few's concept of one veteran mentoring another when you look at specialty populations of veterans, branding that is very effective in growing that community. So Darby Project, that's rangers that mentor and help rangers. It's not only rangers that served in a 75th Ranger Regiment. It is rangers that earned their ranger tab at ranger school. And there, I, there's always a, well, you're not a real ranger. We, are not, we don't have time for that stuff. The, the type of individual that goes through everything it takes to go through to earn a ranger tab is the kind of person I want on my team. So there's a very like mentality. So those population, that population fits together very well. Raider project is Marine Corps special operations veterans and Marine Corps infantrymen. And uh, as we're starting to see, there are other populations in the Marine Corps that have had just as traumatic experiences that need the the one-on-one connection and if you have a MARSOC veteran that's helping a Marine, I mean, that's like a Ranger helping a, somebody that served in the 1st Infantry Division. There's a lot of respect there. So those those populations, Darby Project has a Ranger that heads up the Darby Project. That's not me. Raider Project has a Marine Corps Special Operations veteran that heads up that. Uh, both of them are combat veterans. And uh, we're, we have an Air Force program called Wings Level that we're in the process now of kind of growing and developing. We may do something for the Navy down the road. It just depends on what... Uh, the population is and what the what the actual population of veterans need. Gallant Few picks up the slack for everything else. So if you're a military policeman and you're not a ranger and you weren't in the Marine Corps, Gallant Few has got a place for you. We can still fit you in and we can connect you with another military police veteran that's in your local area that either needs help transitioning or, you know, just sometimes we connect people. There are no on the surface evident transition issues. But when you get them connected together, all of a sudden a great job opportunity comes because somebody knows somebody else. And network. I mean, it just absolutely. Um, Run Ranger Run. Back in 2011, Gallant Few was an inky dinky organization that hadn't quite helped 100 veterans yet. But we got a little bit of awareness in the Ranger community. And I had an active duty Ranger squad leader that called me up and said, 
I've got a corporal, one of my team leaders, that is uh, leaving the Army on the 1st of January. And he has this crazy idea that he wants to run. He wants to run home. And maybe you can help him with that. I get Corey Smith on the telephone. And, uh, and I say, hey, Corey, I, I hear you're planning on running home. Where's home? And he said, Indianapolis. And Corey's in Columbus, Georgia. And I said, why are you doing this? And he said, when I came back from my last combat deployment, my wife had taken our one-year-old daughter, cleaned out the apartment, left me an air mattress and a TV. And a note that said, you can be a ranger or you can be a dad. You pick which one it's going to be. And so he's like, I've got no choice. I have to, I have to, I'm a dad. I've got to go be a dad. So I have to, I have to leave the army. And as he processed this and, and from when she had left, he'd started, he'd work all day, then he'd come home and then he'd go run on a 10, 15 mile run at night because his mind is working. He needs to go out and he needs to, he's making a choice to do something positive instead of going and getting drunk. And he said, I think that I can talk about or I can be a physical manifestation of the difficult journey that a soldier has becoming a civilian by running 565 miles back to Indianapolis. And I said, okay, I agree with you. What, what is your plan for that? And he said, I'm going to run 20 miles a day till I'm done. And I said, and what's your support plan for that? And he said, oh, mom's going to follow me in the car. So he hadn't totally thought through how many calories was he going to need medical support? Where's he going to stay? How much money is he going to need for this? How many pairs of shoes? I mean, all of that gas money. Uh, so I said, well, we'll, we'll be glad to, we'll, we'll see if we can raise some money to provide some expenses and we'll see if we can find some people to help provide support along the way. But I've got to ask you for permission for something. And that is when you're going through a town, we need to prep the area ahead of time so they know you're coming. So the newspaper the mayor, the chamber of commerce, so you can stop and talk to people about why you're doing this. Because if you don't get that visibility, you're just a guy running through town and nobody, you know, you're not going to accomplish what you want to do. So he agreed to that and he set out on his run and we had a, a gold star mom named Sue Penny, whose son was a silver star recipient medic that gave his life on the battlefield. She starts calling and she picks up a phone call, CNN. Hey, I got a ranger that's running 20 miles a day. You need to see him. So they wanted to see him. So Robin Mead did an interview with him on her Salute the Troops show, actually did two of them. And now his congressman says, hey, Corey, I want you to come to the State of the Union address. So we had to take him off the run, stake him out, go send him to the State of the Union address where he sat in the balcony. And I mean, just he started having some marvelous experiences. But along the way, he started spreading the message. And by the time he was done, he had ran, he got a stress fracture in his leg, he walked until we got him a bike, and then he biked the rest of the way in, then he ran the last couple of miles. And I was there for the finish of it. But he ran, walked, and biked 565 miles in a month. 7,000 Facebook fans following this. And we raised about $12,000. So we thought, you know, we've, we've got a, and the reception he got in Indianapolis with his parents holding his daughter, it was just an amazing deal. We, we have got to take this and we have to grow it. We have to build it because we have a spark of an idea here that will do something. So we decided to take the concept of 565 miles in 28 days, the month of February. And can you and nine other people do what Corey did? So that means 56 and a half miles per person times 10, 565 miles, walking, biking, running, treadmill, Stairmaster, swimming, it doesn't matter as long as you can measure the distance we want you to participate. And it doesn't have to be 
10 people all going doing the same thing. You could have a grandma on a treadmill in the Y. You could have a kid riding a bike to school. You could have a soldier walking on patrol in Germany, and they're all on the same team accumulating their miles. And through this process, our number one goal of Run Ranger Run is awareness because people got to understand what veteran transition issues are and why the community needs to understand that and what they need to do about it. And then we want them to understand what Gallup View does in response to that. And then as a result of that awareness, there's an opportunity to donate if they believe in what we're doing. Uh, first year that we did this, we raised over $100,000 and it cost virtually nothing to do the event. Uh, so we have, we've done it now three years in a row. It is moving, it, it's the largest fundraiser that Gallup View does. It's the largest awareness event that we do. Um, it's something that we've had, we've had gold star family members put teams together to honor their soldier who was killed overseas. And, and I mean, it's just, it's a wonderful way to further pull the community together. And what's fascinating about this, we have a Google map that we pinpoint everybody that participates in Run Ranger Run. And I pulled up the city of Houston last year and just looked at that. And there were 50 people in the city of Houston that were participating in Run Ranger Run, but they were on like 10 different teams. So somebody in Houston's connected with somebody in Chicago and Miami, and they're all on one team. But there's somebody else that's like right in their grid square that's on a different team, which means they probably don't know each other. So right. now there's another opportunity to start building this this, it's it's like a spider web, but connections between veterans that has got to be put in place. So when a veteran comes to Houston that doesn't know about Gallup View, they bump into somebody and they go, hey, you're transitioning. You need to get connected. Here's a place, gallupview.org, go do that. And, uh, and, and it's very, very powerful. And I think it has the potential to have 10,000, 20,000 people participate in it. And uh, our goal We've said a couple of things from the beginning that Gallup View will not do. We will not put crying veterans and their families on commercials because that that is uh, it's horrible that somebody would do that to a veteran. We're not going to do that. So we don't talk about specifics. I, I don't mention names. When I talk about a veteran in Kansas City, he really isn't in Kansas City. He's somewhere else. So you can't identify who we're talking about. And we're not going to be the person that every time you turn around, we've got our hand out asking for money. Uh, we, we want to focus, have some focused events that are awareness raising primarily, and the, the second, uh, the, the second benefit of that is it raises money for the organization. And so far, we're able to do that. Last year, and this is a scary, scary deal for me. Last year, Gallifu provided in grants and other kind of direct support to veterans, like they needed help making a car payment or whatever. After we've gone through our process of diagnosing. We gave out over $400,000 worth of support wow. to veterans last year. Um, and it's scary because I'm looking at our bank account and it's starting to get kind of small. And I'm like, the run range <laughs> runs not till February. So, you know, we, we have a lot of faith that what we're doing is the right thing. And, and uh, as long as the awareness keeps going out there, it's going to build and we'll get the kind of support that we need. I love that it's veterans helping veterans. It, it has to be of the community, by the community and for the community. And what works for a Marine in Kansas City is not the same thing that works for a Marine in San Francisco or a Marine in New York. It's got to be veterans in each one of those areas have to set the conditions for success for that veteran that's coming back into their community. And if we, the more that we can build that, I would love, 
to for the VA or I heard the Wounded Warrior Project has a new executive director now or, or if his head is not up his fourth point of contact and they're able to <laughs> to um, affect some real change in that organization. I mean, think about if the VA were to say, we want local veterans to mentor veterans that are going through a transition and we will facilitate the introductions. Gal, if you would go, here it is, we'll help you go do it because I want to go get a job and make some money. We could solve, if we had a million veterans in the United States that said, we're going to mentor other veterans in our community, veteran transition would be resolved in a month. So Kat is going to do something for the Royal Marines in the UK that very few women have completed, especially American women. And it's a 103-mile yomp, or 166.4-kilometer march in about a 36-hour span that's straight through. Has she had a psychological assessment done lately? <laughs> <laughs> I know, it's crazy. But, yeah, we talked to the coordinator. I actually just started my training program yesterday. But we, what intrigued me was we were talking to the coordinator and the YOMPs, all the UK and service members over there, they do a walk like we do our memorial rucks or runs for charities and they raise funds for different organizations over there. And I asked them, I was like, well, do you have any American participants? They said, we've had a few, none for as far as a charity, as far as women, military. I think that he said one, but I don't know if she finished it or not, or she did finish it. And one Marine finished it. But in the single digits, they've had any. The U.S. has gone over there to do this just to be out there to represent the United States. And I'm like, that's wrong. Like, there should be more Americans over there doing this to represent the United States and and what our veterans are going through because their veterans are going through the same thing. And many of our heroes that have died have died among U.K. service members. And so I did my research and I did a lot of uh, uh, gut checking and I decided to... Doing the YOMP next May, I actually just got a, about a 10-month training program. But yesterday, just so happened that one of I posted a, a video on uh, Instagram, and one of the followers said, I will contribute $1 per mile for the first 100 miles. Me and the mentors team, we've been trying to decide a charity that we want to contribute to and that I want to walk for. And if it's okay with you, we would love to support Gallant Few and make that our primary our primary charity for all donations that are coming in for me well, and this walk. Uh, under one condition, and that is you have to help yeah. me figure out how to do what we do with female veterans because there is a need, and I, I'm not a female. So when I talk about my whole military experience was all men. Everywhere it was all men. So... I tend to say things like men and guys and brothers, and we have to be able to, When if there's a female veteran in Dallas that needs assistance, she's probably not going to want to talk to me because she may have had a bad experience with another soldier, the, a male soldier. So by getting female veterans, by building the female veteran network that can help each other, I think we're going to make a big difference there too. So I need your help to do that. You, you talk about how the Rangers will listen to Rangers and Marines will listen to Marines. And it's funny because especially with the combat ban going away, women being allowed to go into those capabilities, myself not being in combat arms, but having worked amongst Rangers, mm -hmm. it, the, the, our community is so small. Extremely important, especially with Gallant Few and how you have the Darby Project and the Raider Project to have a project, to have a, 
a little niche in there for women veterans because we, we it's just like those guys like we have our own struggles that we can only relate to one another and I get emotional about it because I would love to be able to support the cause and you know raise awareness for that. Your experience and your expertise can help gallant few figure out how can we help women veterans better. Thank you so Thank much you for much. joining us. Thanks, Carl. Good to talk to you guys. Thank you for listening to our podcast. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and at Facebook by searching at Mentors, the number four M-I-L, and please subscribe to our podcast. It's free, and it ensures you're the first to hear our latest podcast show. We have several options depending upon your device, and we're at iTunes, SoundCloud, at Stitcher, and at TuneIn Radio.